Amen. All right. Well, our word today is from Matthew 15. Uh, We'll be in verses 21 through 31. Many of you may have uh, familiarity with this story. This, uh, this This account is in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. And um, this often is referred to as uh, the, the account of Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman, uh, Syrophoenician just marking the uh, region that she's from. But our text in Matthew actually denotes that it is Jesus with a woman from Canaan, a Canaanite woman. And so we'll read this together, verses 21 through 31. We begin verse 21. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Let's pray for God's word to sink deeply into our minds and hearts. God, I pray this evening that you would be pleased to inhabit your word. And may the words that I speak merely reflect the goodness and truth of your eternal word. And we pray this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. So I want us to think, uh, first of all, uh, about a particularly memorable moment that you had in life. A, a time when uh, you, you had an experience and it stuck, something that stuck with you your entire life. I would imagine, no offense to teachers, that it wasn't in a classroom. Uh, most likely, the, the most memorable moments that we have are an experience that we've had. And so I want us to think, what made it so memorable? What made that, what that, made that moment so memorable? And and why did it stick with us for so long? If we can think, for instance, uh, those of you, if you've ever um, been in medical school or, or know someone in medical school, you know that they practice for a long, a long time. They have residency and then before they ever go into practicing medicine. Um, and in particular, those who have life-saving techniques, uh, the experience of learning about a life-saving technique and actually administering a life-saving technique is wildly different 
Um, you've, you, you learn something about the way the, the world works. You learn something about yourself through that experience. And I, and I guarantee you that administering a life-saving technique or medicine is, is not an experience that one would likely forget. And, and so I, what I think that we see is a teaching moment where Jesus uses this in our text as an experience. We, we learn all throughout the book of Matthew that uh, as Jesus is going through his earthly ministry, he, he spares no expense to teach his disciples as well as all of those around him. And so he certainly taught in, in, in parables, which is the most common form that we're familiar with from the Gospels that Jesus taught in. But it, it wasn't the only way in which he taught. He, he made use of, like wise teachers do, situations in which the outcome learned is actually greater than it otherwise would have been. We can look back to just chapter 14, right before our passage here, where Jesus was in the boat or walking on the water and getting in the boat with the disciples. Uh, it's, it's actually something that we would say they, they an experience or a truth that they, they caught rather than something that was directly taught to them. So Jesus could have explained to them in, in a teaching manner that he had the power to control the wind and control the seas. But it's, it's likely that it wouldn't have ended in the, in the same way that, that he shows us, that it, that it does in that passage, which is that they had a conviction and worshipped him as the son of God. And so that's the kind of teaching that we have in our text today in chapter 15. We've come out of, to set the context for us a little bit, we've come out of a section previously in chapter 15 where Jesus has just proclaimed to the people in opposition to the rabbinic tradition that it's not what goes into the body that defiles a person, but it's actually what comes out of the mouth that defiles or in other words, a man or a woman isn't made unclean by what he or she eats. That was the predominant teaching of the day. Rather, Jesus says one is proven unclean by the words that he says or the actions that she takes. He, he mentions these things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He mentions these things particularly are are ways that a person is proven unclean or unfit in the sight of God. And so I say that to give us context because it's no coincidence that the first place that we see Jesus actually withdrawing to from that scene is actually the most unclean territory that Jewish regulation could imagine. Verse 21, it shows us Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if we look at a map of all of Jesus' travels in his earthly ministry, this is the northernmost point of all of his travels. It's roughly 30 miles outside of this previous scene where he was with the Pharisees and the scribes. And it is well into predominant Gentile territory. It is a very indirect route for most of all of the ongoings of his his other documented earthly ministry. 
And to add insult to injury, Matthew tells us that this woman they meet here, as we've mentioned, isn't just an unclean Gentile. She is a Canaanite. It's the only place in all of the New Testament that a Canaanite is mentioned. And so when something is that unique, it actually should make us kind of put our proverbial antennas up and say, this is actually probably important. We should pay attention to this. And you'll remember that the Canaanites take up a, a significant portion of the Old Testament, and it's not a favorable role that they take up. Um, you'll remember that these were the people Israel was supposed to take over and fully drive out as they entered into the promised land of Canaan. So without going into a full dive into the conquest of Canaan, we, we do need to note two things to help us understand this text here today. The first is that at the time of the conquest, the, the land was overtaken with iniquity, and which was the reason for them driving them out. Uh, these were common practices, religious prostitution, child sacrifice, and even serpent worship. These were common religious practices in their time, so it's no stretch to say it's an unclean land and an unclean people. That's her history. And the second thing we should note is that Canaan was the land promised to Abraham that we read in Genesis 15, the land in which his, his heir would always rule and reign after the throne of David with righteousness. So there's no doubt then a purpose why Matthew actually places this where he does. The disciples are about to see in real time in a way that they couldn't have otherwise just what proves a person's cleanliness, what makes someone clean. And not only that, but this, this woman and these crowds are about to learn in a particular way about the mercy of the one true God of Israel, the character of of the king that he has appointed over his kingdom. And so what I want us to look at together is the tone of this faith that Jesus commends in this woman is great faith. That's something we all desire to hear from Christ. And so it is especially important for us to look at what are the things that make up what Jesus commends is great faith. We've heard the list just a second ago of what proves uncleanliness, and so now we, we look at things that are proofs of, of cleanliness. And so the first thing I want to note is the tone of her faith. In verse 22, we read, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Now, we read this here as a, as a momentary cry. But the true sense of the word we have is, was crying as the connotation of, that this is a continual cry. This is, this is not just a, a one-time thing. This is over and over and over. It's not a single plea for help. And hence the aggravation that we see from the disciples in the text who really just want to get rid of her as, as quickly as possible. As crass as we can put it, this is... a this isn't a woman that, that you would want to have an interaction with on the side of the road because she, for, for all the people around, is, is an irritation. She's an aggravation to them. She's a nuisance, but she's persistent. She isn't giving up. She's continually crying out after Jesus. And what is it that she's crying out? 
her plea there in verse 22. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord. She doesn't start with a claim to a position or or a status of why he should have mercy, simply because she doesn't have any position or status. She doesn't try to come with an excuse of of why she's in the situation that she's in because it doesn't matter. The only plea that she finds that she's able to muster is have mercy over and over and over. Her daughter is, we read, enslaved to demonic activity. Mark, in his gospel, actually tells us she was a a little daughter and she had an unclean spirit. And so this woman who has an unclean heritage and is living in an unclean land has a little girl at home who's suffering from the activity of an unclean spirit. And when she hears that Jesus is in her town, she's compelled to run to him for nothing more than to say, have mercy. Because she understands this is the one whom is the king, who can actually have mercy on me. And so as we look at what Jesus commends in her as great faith, the first thing I want us to consider is the overwhelming tone that she has and the position that she takes when she's continually pleading for mercy. And we have to ask ourselves as well, is this the tone of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus? It's something we confess often at Christ community. We, we often say, Lord, in your mercy, uh, hear our prayer at the end of our prayers. We often confess it in our confessions on, in the morning times, and, and we sing about it in our hymns. But, but in the prayers that we utter, even in the smallest times of our days, in the in-between moments of rushing to things or, or thinking through just all of the different complexities of life, is this the tone that the Lord hears from us on a continual basis? Lord, have mercy over and over and over. And if not, if, if, not, if, if we answer that honestly and say, I don't think that that is the tone, then, then we have to ask why? why. Why isn't that the tone that the Lord hears from me? What's the key difference between this woman and this text and me if I find that that isn't the tone of my prayer And I think the answer to that is often that we are not aware of our desperation just as this woman was. She was faced with it firsthand. She had no thing to hide behind, whereas we can often build things up in our own lives. It could be social status or a life that we've built or a persona that we have built that we... Um, want to be presented as, as ones who are clean in and of ourselves. And yet what that, what that does is it actually puts us in a position not to see the king of mercy who is willing to extend forgiveness and cleansing to those who actually kneel at his feet and continually cry out for that mercy. So I wonder that if we would embrace the, the, the same kind of desperation that this, this woman had, how might the Lord reveal himself 
to you and to I in, in those moments of being aware of our desperation. Because we see in this text that he uses her desperate conditions to, to actually bring a greater awareness of her deepest need. And her faith actually becomes clearest in this moment of despair. And it's because she has faith in something outside of herself. So the second thing I want us to see is the, the object that she places her faith in. What is this object of her faith? We go back to verse 22. Her cry is, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. The title that she attributes to him, O Lord, Son of David, is an informed title. How could this be? She's a woman living off in a far-off land. Presumably, she's never met Jesus before. So how can it be that she's actually ascribing to him this title of master and this title of the righteous heir of, of David? The reformer John Calvin actually notes that it must be that she has heard the voice of Christ before. He says the testimony of his wondrous works has surely reached her village, and it's extremely likely that she knew the history of her people, the Canaanites. But there's no reason for us to conclude that she would understand Jesus to be her master or the rightful heir of David. It, it must be that she has heard these words in faith. He says a seed has been planted in her heart so that she had believed on him who was showing himself to be the promised deliverer. So it's her confession then, O Lord, Son of David, which is her key, the key for us to, to understand what she knows to be what true life is. The, in, in the Gospel of John, he, he notes in Jesus' prayer for his people, his high, priest, high priestly prayer in chapter 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so she shows us that her confession in the Lord, the Son of David, by confessing this, she is placing her faith outside of herself for deliverance. And so we've noted the tone of faith, and, and now we ask, what is the object of our faith? What is the content of our confession? Do you ascribe to Jesus the title of Lord, the title of Master? Does our posture denote that we've submitted to him as, as, a, as our Lord, as a, as a Master? And when we think on the Lord Jesus, do we understand the centrality of his role as the king that God has appointed to rule over his people in his kingdom? Or yet, do, do we find ourselves honoring him with our lips and, and yet trying to exercise kingship over whatever dominion we have? And I'm speaking to myself here that when, I, when I ask you these questions, in a, in a critical moment, as you reflect, is your inclination to, to cling for control, to clamor for control? Or do we understand him to be the sovereign king, even over all of our circumstances? who will, in his mercy, work all things for the good of those who love him. If this is you, if, if you find yourself 
saying, yes, I, I, I do. There are, there, there are moments that I'm not trusting in the Lord's kingship over, over every area of my life. Remember again the tone of faith, which is, is a humble and contrite heart. And, and then we must look again outside of us to the object of our faith, the one in whom we believe, the one whom is merciful, the one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we begin again this cycle of great faith, repentance, and, and belief in him. But what happens when we, we don't hear anything in response to a desperate plea for mercy? Because that's what happens in our text. We see in verse 23. It says, but he did not answer her a word. I find that John Calvin's words on this text again are helpful. He says, in this way, the Lord often acts towards those who believe in him. He speaks to them and yet is silent. Relying on the testimonies of scripture, where they hear him speaking, they firmly believe that he will be gracious to them. And yet he doesn't immediately reply to their wishes or their prayers but on the contrary, seems as if he didn't hear. But what's beautiful about our text is that this silence is actually not an indication of neglect. It isn't as if Jesus is neglecting this woman. In fact, it's actually the opposite. It's, it's the evidence of him orchestrating something. I greatly enjoy music and uh, I have the privilege to, to help lead uh, musically at Christ Community Church. Um, I'm definitely not an expert. There we, have, we have many folks in our body who are much better uh, musicians than I am, but, uh, but I, I do find myself to be a student of it, and I enjoy seeing things that happen in music. And one thing that I've always found to be extremely profound and perplexing all at the same time is, is not necessarily the, the sounds the notes, but more so the pauses, the rests in music, the, the intentional pauses, the rests between notes. It's, it's pretty amazing how a busy piece of music can actually cluster a lot of notes or chords together and, and maybe overwhelm you with what's going on and then in a moment of silence actually give you the time that's necessary to reflect on what has just been played. Actually, silence can be uh, used as a powerful tool for eliciting emotion. Uh, when the trajectory of a song is leading you in a particular direction, whether joyful, really high, or very sad and, and low, a pause can actually be the exact thing that's needed to allow you to linger in that moment that's being created in the music. And I think we can say that Jesus' silence here in our text is serving all of these purposes. But most poignantly, I think the intention of his silence is to do what I found classical pieces of music to do best, which is to highlight the thing that's coming up, to highlight the next thing. Jesus doesn't answer her a word, not because he doesn't hear her. The text makes it clear everyone hears her. The purpose behind his silence is that something's coming up that will be crystallized by the silence. It's as if the way that he's conducting the symphony, so to speak, everyone's waiting on pins and needles for his response. And so the disciples come to him, we might imagine. They say, 
Lord, get this woman out of here. We are working extremely hard. You've been doing all this ministry on uh, throughout throughout Judea, and we're 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 trying to go up to this far off unknown place to get you some rest. And we don't have time for these unclean dogs. And so Jesus answers them with his mission. He says, I came for only for the lost sheep of Israel. And they're, they're interrupted by her worship that we see. And she kneels at his feet. And in verse 23, says, sorry, 25, she says, Lord, help me. And so as he looks at her, he looks at the disciples. Jesus tells her, it isn't right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. It's a perplexing statement there, something that can seem troubling. One thing that we should know um, about this statement is actually it was a very common thing for Gentiles to be referred to as dogs in their context. In the Jewish mind, dogs were the epitome of being unclean. They had no homes. They were generally street dogs. They, are, they ate garbage. They were scavengers. But what's beautiful about what Jesus does here in this passage is actually he redefines the perceptions because the term that he uses is a, different, is a different form of this word dog. and It wouldn't have been the common use of the word street dog, but actually denotes what is associated with a house pet. It's a dog that's chosen to actually belong to a family and reside in a home. And so at one and the same time, Jesus is affirming his mission to God's people, the house of Israel. But he's also teaching them that this house isn't defined by those who present themselves as ritually clean. The requirement of belonging to this house is actually the mercy of the master of the house. And she knows this with her reply. She says, yes, Lord. She doesn't deny it. She says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't make any claim because she knows there's no rightful claim to make. But she says, you are merciful. The master is merciful. So two things as we, we think about her response of faith. The first is when you hear silence in your fellowship with the Lord, we might ask proverbially, do we presume that there's no music playing? Or, or do you lean in with focus for what, for what might be coming next? If you were to attend a symphony and you were brought to a place of silence in the music, I would imagine that our first thought isn't that the conductor has just lost all interest in the music and that uh, he stopped caring about the piece as a whole. Now, I think we would all understand that he intends for us to focus our ears in and, and hear the beauty of the thing that's going to come next. And so I ask, are, are you tuning your ears to hear and focusing your attention on, on what will come next when you hear silence? Trusting that it will in the appointed time. And the second thing as, as we think about her response of faith is that are you resolute in the blessings, such as this woman was, that the blessings of God are yours, but not because of anything of yourself, but solely because of the mercy of the master of the kingdom of God. The woman had no delusions. She knew who she was. She knew according to rightful inheritance, she had 
no claim. But she also knew that the sufficiency and the surplus of the mercy of Jesus, the bread of life himself, was abundant enough for even someone like her. So are, are you resolute? Not in yourself, but in the abundance of the mercy of Jesus. So the last, the last thing that I, that I want us to, to see in our text tonight is actually the result of faith. We've looked at the tone of her faith. We've looked at the object of her faith. We've looked at the response of her faith. And now we're going to look at what is the result of faith. We also see these works that Jesus has done when he went up and walked on uh, the, the mountain and sat down and healed the, the, the crowds, the lame, the blind, the crippled, many others. And these are miraculous, scientifically inexplicable acts of supernatural work. They're, they're undoubtedly a fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 29 and 35 of the book of Isaiah. He writes about in the context of the redemption for the ransomed in Christ that have been dispersed across the earth. He says that things will happen like sight will be given to the blind. Working legs will be given to the lame and active vocal cords for those who are mute. And, and these miraculous works can be contrasted with scenes earlier in Matthew, in chapter 11, where, where Jesus pronounces woes to a, the, these cities, one being Bethsaida. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, our region that we're looking at here, than for you. So these denounced cities received these same miraculous works, just as, just as wonderful and amazing. But they were denounced. And the difference is that they did not possess faith. So the one thing that we cannot see as the result of faith is that faith produces miracles. The signs and wonders have miraculous, but we also must remember temporary blessings. The, the blessing that was given to the lame was that he would walk. But he was still walking in a body that would eventually pass away. The blessing that was given to the blind was that he could see, but one day his eyes would close again. The blessing given to the mute was a loosened tongue to sing praises to God, but Eventually, his voice would be heard no more. Now, the, the point in the miraculous works that we find here, the point of the result of faith is actually what we find in the concluding verse of our text. Verse 31. It says, The crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. The point is that there is something so much greater to which the blessings of God point. The, the result of faith is not merely a healthy body. The result of faith is not merely an orderly life or, or things that we might think are good and right things. Justice in a matter that seems to be unjust. Reconciliation in estranged relationships. All wonderful blessings of the Lord that in his abundance he surely will give to his 
people, but the result of faith is, is this, that they glorified the one true God of Israel. And they looked forward to a day where there would, it, would, it would be a permanent day where there would be no more sickness or sadness or injustice or even death. So the result of faith then is the enabled acknowledgement that there is a kingdom wholly unlike the kingdom that we would set up for ourselves that has actually broken into time and space. And, and the eyes of faith look forward to the day that we will partake not only merely of the crumbs from the master's table, but, but as invited guests at his table to take of the feast that he has prepared. And that's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper as we look forward in faith. That the body of Christ, which is the bread of life, that was given for us, that we might glory in him, the one true God. Let's pray. God, we praise your name. And thank you that you would have mercy even on unclean people like us. We praise you that, that you have sent your word out to the nations and, and continue to do so. We praise you that we will be recipients of a feast prepared for us in glory, not because of anything worthy in ourselves, but because you have unending mercy for those who couldn't ever deserve it. We pray, God, that you would help us to look forward in faith, just as this woman did, knowing that you are able and desire to show great mercy to those who will look forward in great faith. We pray this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. All right.